0: Welcome to Destination Change, a podcast where we talk recovery, treatment, and more. I'm your host, Angie Fiedler-Sutton, with the National Behavioral Health Association of Providers. Our guest today is Nick Stavros. He is the CEO of Community Medical Services, where he has worked for the past 10 years. Previously, Nick was an intelligence analyst and Arabic linguist in the U.S. Army and finished his military career as an Airborne Ranger, Qualified Infantry captain, and Iraq War veteran. Upon honorably discharging from the Army, Stavros received his MBA from UCLA Anderson School of Management, and is an alumnus of the Arizona Valley Leadership Institute. Nick is on the board of the National Association for Behavioral Health, NABH, and chairs its medical medication subcommittee. He is also the Arizona representative to the American Association of the Treatment of Opioid Dependence, AATOD, and the president of the Arizona chapter of AATOD, which provides collaborative opportunities for facilities throughout the state. Nick is also on the ASU Medical Advisory Board. Arizona's Parents' Commissions on Drug Education and Prevention with the Arizona Governor's Office, an advisory board member of the National Conference on Addiction Disorders, and a board member for HMP's Treatment Center Investment and Valuations Retreat, both the East and the West. Thank you very much for joining us today. Yeah, thanks for having me. For those who are familiar with the podcast, they know my first question is always the same, basically kind of how you got into the addiction treatment space, especially with the background in the Army. How did you get from that to wanting to work with you know, addiction treatment and behavior health?
1: Yeah. So good question. I mean, I came out of the army in 2011 and let's see, I came to community medical services in 2013. And at the time it was partially family owned business. My entire family works in this space. My dad and brother are both physicians. My mom, sister are both, both nurses. My other brother and sister are both social workers. And so I was the oddball in the army. And so came to community medical services actually in 2013, really to help prep them for a sale at the time, all the owners, and it was not family run at the time, it was being run by non-family members. All the owners were like, you know, there was kind of like a consolidation happening in the market for opioid treatment programs. And so I came to help prep the company for a sale and I really just very, very quickly got passionate about the cause, you know, coming out of the military where, you know, and then, I mean, I was, I was army infantry. So I was kind of, I felt like I was, you know, on the front lines, like tip of the spear dealing with kind of global crises at the time. And so coming into this field where the opioid epidemic in this country was kind of like, and still is one of society's biggest problems, I saw an opportunity for us to, to really make an impact with this company because I knew, you know, there was this shortage of treatment, which the gap between those getting treatment and those needing treatment was getting bigger and bigger and bigger, still getting bigger and bigger and knew some solutions were needed. And so got really excited about being able to make an impact. And so, yeah, that's been like our drive to grow. There were, we, we had six clinics in two states at the time. We're at about 75 clinics in 13 states right now. And so it's been cool been able to grow, meet the need, expand access in underserved communities. And that's really what our company is focused on doing.
0: And you talk a little bit more about that. Joe, I mean, I guess you don't really have a typical day per se, but kind of what do you do as part of the, your, your job duties in terms of working with these companies?
1: Well, yeah, I mean, so I'm the CEO. And so what that means, like the role of a CEO changes pretty dramatically as a company kind of develops and morphs into new phases of growth, like constantly. And so I've had to kind of like redefine my role with each kind of phase of growth. And so I'd say today I'm at the point where I have a really strong executive team. You know, I've actually spent the last couple of years like building a strong executive team. And now I'm at the place where I have a very strong executive team. So I'm much less involved in like day-to-day You know, tactical decision making and stuff like that, and more focused on fostering a a good, strong culture and team environments and providing just overall kind of direction and vision for the company. And so that's where I spend my time today. I, I also do a lot on, you know, just kind of being the face of the company. So presenting at conferences, fostering relationships with kind of key stakeholders working on strategy and planning and stuff like that. And so and then whenever like if we do have a gap somewhere, like I'll step in and and fill in where I could help. If we have a gap, if one of the executives is on a leave of absence or something and I need to help with their team or something like that, I'll step in and help. And so it's it's a pretty dynamic job right now.
0: Let's talk a little bit more about your work with the uh, AATOD. For those who may not be familiar with it, not really the kind of the elevator pitch as to what what exactly that company and what AATOD does and kind of how you got involved with them. You talked a little bit about that already, but just a little bit more in terms of what made you get into that space.
1: Sure. So ATOD is the American Association for the Treatment of Opioid Dependence and so it represents OTPs throughout the countries. It's not a trade organization by definition. It's uh, more of an association that's similar to a trade organization, but it's not technically one. And so it, you know, it's working on whether it's state. Well, ETOD is a national organization, but then it has state chapters and not every state, but almost every state has a chapter. And then there's a representative for that state. So I'm the representative for Arizona. I sit on the ETOD board. And so I help work with all the OTPs, for instance, in Arizona on, you know, if we're having specific issues or sharing best practices, or if there's like legislative things we want to work on either in Arizona or nationally, you know, ATOD is there to support. And so, yeah, that's primarily kind of what ATOD does.
0: Well, what are some of the resources that you you use on a regular basis? One of the things I like to share with people who are listening is just kind of where they can go to get help. So if they're trying to do more in terms of the industry.
1: You mean providers? Providers, yeah.
0: Yeah. So that
1: association is specific to opioid treatment programs only. And so it's not as every, almost every state, like I said, has a chapter. So you can reach out to your local chapter if you want to learn more. But like I said, if you're not an OTP, you can still most likely participate. Like we have our chapter meetings, which are monthly. I'd actually say the the majority of the participants there are not OTPs. They might be universities and people from the MCOs or the Medicaid agency or the state. And it's kind of like just a place where we come together and collaborate on, you know, what are we seeing with trends regarding, you know, drug trends in the state, And what are people doing about it? And how can we find kind of like innovative solutions to deal with some of those problems? Because the more we can, you know, I mean, I'm a pretty firm believer. The more we can build a strong ecosystem of supports, the more successful we're going to be as an industry, and the more success patients are going to have when they have, you know, treatment providers working. Whether it's treatment providers working with each other or working with, you know, let's say correctional health system or or hospital systems or other mental health and behavioral health providers, like the more that ecosystem could work in like alignments, the more success you're going to get. So constantly, you know, I know our chapter in Arizona is trying hard to make sure we're fostering like those relationships and building bridges that might historically have divided different entities
0: I'm assuming that's through your, your advocacy effort or at work primarily talk a little bit more about that in terms of, you know, how much do you work with somebody who's, I know at BHAP, for example, has an advocate that we work with Andrew Kessler. Is that something like you do, or is that you yourself go in and do the advocacy? No, we we do
1: that. I mean, so ATOD has like, for instance, ATOD has the lobbyist and we're on a couple different, I'm a part of a number of associations that have kind of their own lobbying and advocacy efforts. But a lot of times those are more geared towards like industry specific issues. And we, you know, we do have like our association in Arizona has a lobbyist. We as a company have a lobbyist in Arizona and we have lobbyists in multiple states. But a lot of times when we're doing lobbying and advocacy, it's not necessarily like for industry necessarily related issues. Like we do a lot on the harm reduction front. So that might mean. Lobbying to get Good Samaritan laws passed, or syringe access programs legalized, or more access to naloxone, things like that. So not necessarily stuff that pertain to specifically like to like to our business or our even our industry, but does pertain to the patient population that we treat. You know, we have the ability to advocate on behalf of our patient population, which a lot of times is a patient population whose voice is not always heard. I mean, and is kind of left out of a lot of the things that. You see in legislation and stuff like legalizing syringe access programs, let's say there's not any financial interests for anybody to do that. And so sometimes it's hard to find like legislative sponsors, but if it's the right thing to do, like somebody's gotta maybe front the bill for lobbying for that or or build a coalition around it. And so we find ourselves doing that quite often.
0: okay. Let's talk a little bit about you know, the state work specifically. He happens very similar. We, although we are a trade association or a national organization, but we partner with states because obviously state level laws are different depending on states. So talk a little bit more about your work with Arizona specifically versus the national level. Hmm. Well,
1: we don't do a lot of work on the national level at all because, I mean, really there's there's a lot of associations that are out there doing that work. And so we feel like, I mean, it's it's a lot easier to foster relationships at the state level. Now, I guess, are you asking as a company, like Community Medical Services, or as part of some association?
0: Both. It's just kind of compare the the working on a state level versus working on a national level, where some of the differences and some sort of the similarities? Hmm. I'd say on a national level, well, it's always harder because
1: it's, it's, it's hard to get unity a lot of times. When you have a bunch of big, let's say big national providers trying to get unity on a specific issue, let's say that's that's difficult a lot of times. And there's some organizations that are out there that are really good at it, and some organizations that struggle. and And so I'd say, plus, you know, stuff at the national level, you know, is' obviously bigger and broader. And at the end of the day, a lot of stuff that happens at the national level still has to be you know, maybe implemented at the state level or states can, can have a big say in how things are, you know, how some national legislation actually gets, gets adopted in the state. I mean, states have a lot of of say in that. So I'd say we do, we do a lot more at the state level and it's not, I mean, not just Arizona, we're in 13 states and there's, you know, every state has their own kind of issues. And maybe one state might be more stigmatizing against, you know, treatment in general or against methadone treatment for instance. And so we'll try to make a lot of effort in those states to affect change or another state, you know, might have, you know, not great Medicaid enrollment or Medicaid reimbursement or Medicaid supports or even Medicaid interest in like expanding access to medication assisted treatment. And so, you know, we'll try to, I mean, every state we kind of do something different or a lot of times, I mean, We're opening a lot of clinics too throughout the country. And a lot of times, you know, a lot of times communities don't want treatment in their community initially, and they don't like value what treatment has to offer. And so sometimes a lot of our advocacy efforts will be, you know, just trying to, you know, build relationships and educate communities on the data and the statistics around addiction and around treatment for addiction. And so we find ourselves doing a lot of that, just kind of like grassroots um, advocacy on the ground.
0: That's definitely, we've talked before on the podcast about the NIMBY not in my backyard, as well as the stigma attached to it as one of the barriers to move forward in the addiction treatment journey. We talk about how it's not a straight line. It's more of a path that you kind of possibly can backtrack and whatnot. What are some of the other barriers that you've seen for people to come across in terms of moving forward on the addiction treatment journey?
1: Well, yeah, I mean sometimes states have pretty restrictive regulations, you know, counselor ratios is is a great example. Like it really frustrates me when you see states kind of try to dictate things like at that level like with you might say a state might say, you know, the counselor rate to patient ratio should be like one counselor to every 50 patients or 50 patients per counselor. And that's a very like finicky heuristic to to rely on because if you have one counselor that has you know, very, very stable patients on a monthly dose of buprenorphine or Suboxone, let's say, they could probably handle a pretty high caseload. But if you have another counselor that does nothing but deal with the most acute patients with comorbidities, they're going to have a much smaller caseload. Or if you have a counselor who just focuses on doing intakes, right, they could have a very low caseload. And then you might have another counselor who, who again, is dealing with a certain patient-like population. And so I mean, it's all over the place, like kind of what the needs of each individual patient are. So so sometimes, and you'll see that some states allow for the use of mid-level practitioners, like nurse practitioners and physician assistants. Um, and some states make it very difficult to get approval. Some states have requirements around, you know, we need a medical provider there 40% of the time versus other states, you know, there's there's no mandate at all. So we will try to work to you know, there's regulations that are making it really difficult to get people hired or to provide like the highest quality care in an environment that's kind of defined by scarcity of resources in general. Like that does become a barrier to treatment. I mean, we have places where there's there's so few counselors, for instance, licensed. they might require a specific licensure type. And it's so restrictive that it's very hard to find. I mean, if we were to, if we were to go very aggressively to try hire more counselors, then the only way to do it is basically steal counselors from some other program that then is going to be hurting. You know, and and a lot of times you see when it's super restrictive around like licensure requirements in a state, then there's just not enough counselors to meet the need. And so, you know, we're constantly looking like, you know, is there is there ways we can incorporate, you know, AI or other technologies like to help or you know, process improvements or things like that. But sometimes it is like trying to get the regulations in the state changed to be a little bit more accommodating.
0: Great. You've been with community medical services for at least 10 years, probably yeah. a little bit over. You talked a little bit about one of the things that you've paid attention to is some of the trends. What are some of the things that are different now than they were when you first started in terms of the working with and the addiction treatment? What are some of the things that have improved oh. or maybe have gotten worse? Huh. A lot. That, that was a little can of
1: worms. I mean, I think, you know, I, when I came to the field, there was a lot of animosity and a lot of stigma towards addiction in general and treatments for addiction such as methadone and buprenorphine products. I'd say that's definitely not got away, but it's moving like in the right direction. So we've always had a very strong harm reduction Paradigm. And, you know, I think that comes from the fact that we operate, we have clinics in some super rural places. Like Montana is an example where, you know, our chief science officer is in Montana. He was, he was our chief medical officer for the for the last decade pretty much. We're the only program in Montana, the only OTP, the only program that does methadone in Montana. So we've kind of developed this mindset like if somebody's struggling in treatment there with us. It takes a lot for us to quote unquote kick somebody out of treatment because that in Montana, when there's nowhere else to go, that that could be a death sentence. You know, I mean, it's like if we discharge somebody from treatment because they're continuing to, to use, you know, methamphetamines or they're not adhering to their counseling protocol or something like that, we kick them out of treatment. There's nowhere else for them to go. Right. And so so we kind of developed the strong harm reduction paradigm because I think of those kind of experiences. And then we ended up, you know, as we were growing in more both rural and urban environments, like we've kind of kept that mentality. Like harm reduction, we think is a much better way to approach treating addiction. And so I've been encouraged to see the rest of the industry moving in that direction as well, having a more harm reduction oriented approach and even the, the federal regulations that are changing right now, have better, more harm reduction oriented language, because really the regulations that exist for our space for opioid treatment programs and for addiction in general, I mean, our, our country has has had such a stigmatizing view against people struggling with addiction and people who use drugs for, for a long time. And that means that a lot of the regulations that have been written over the last couple of decades have been pretty punitive in nature. And so as we as a society are being more adopting a harm reduction. And more and more people are experiencing either addiction or a loved one with an addiction, like it's causing all of society to have a more compassionate view towards addiction, which we think is a, that's a very positive trend that we've seen. It's exciting. Now, the flip side of that is we're seeing um, much more. So I could tell you the, the three factors that influence retention rates the most in our treatment programs and retention being one of the most important indicators of success in our programs, because you know there's a lot of research out there that says like the minimum amount of time needed on methadone is at least a year. The most adequate amount of time is probably something like three years. So retention rate that are people being retained for one year or three years is a very, very important indicator. Well, we've seen retention rates go down dramatically over the last few years, and the three indicators that are most correlated with retention rates for, for our patients are, one, are they testing positive for fentanyl upon intake? If they are, the retention rates tend to be worse. Are they testing positive for stimulants upon intake? If they are, retention seems to be worse. And what is their social determinants of health status upon intake? If it's worse, if they're not housed, if you know they have more anxiety, depression, all those things upon intake, then their retention rate tends to be worse. Yet, the conundrum here is the, is we're seeing a dramatic increase in all of those three factors. More people testing positive for fentanyl, more people testing positive for stimulus, and worse social determinants of health scores upon intake. And so we're in this period where the, the things that cause worse retention are increasing, and it's pretty dramatic. And, and you know, fentanyl is changing the way treatment Is done in this country. 75% of our patients are testing positive for fentanyl upon intake. That's a high number. But, you know, that's something we're spending a lot of time thinking about as a company. Like, how do we impact those things? And then I'll pause. Do you want to ask any questions? I can keep going. Keep going. (laughs) Yeah. So, obviously, I mean, the environment since, I mean, the last couple of years with COVID and everything else, you know, Obviously, we've seen a positive... We've always been advocates for telehealth because we operate in super rural areas like Alaska and North Dakota, Montana. So we've used telehealth for a long time. We've had to. We relied on it. But COVID really, really ushered in kind of a new era in healthcare of a reliance on telehealth, which I think was long overdue. And so that's kind of one of the, obviously, silver linings that, that happened during COVID. But you know we've also seen dramatic increases in uh interest rates in general inflation you know inflation over the years that that means that wage labor inflation has been the issue i mean and we're primarily medicaid and medicare funded and it's not like medicaid keeps up with inflation by any means so we have salaries going up revenue staying pretty much the same when you look at medicaid rates and so that's just like making it i mean squeezing margins making it harder and harder for providers to operate and then you pile on you know the effects of interest rates on that i mean we have debt we can't do all the growth we want to do without debt financing and so we have debt which means more money towards interest rates and so that's all leading to just less available cash and less available cash means less ability to do the things we want to do open clinics give raises to employees you know give bonuses all those things it's a lot harder to do it in this environment that's super cash constrained And then, you know, we refer to AI as augmented intelligence, not artificial intelligence, because it's, we don't think that we want to be very clear. We are not trying to replace human beings with robots, right? We're trying to augment and supplement the value that humans have to offer. And so, you know, if the most value that a counselor brings to work every day is the time spent counseling patients then we want them to spend as much time as possible counseling patients, not scanning and linking documents, not even entering notes into charts, like all those things that that are part of the job. We're spending a lot of time saying, is there something, can we use AI to augment the human value? And so that's been great. I mean, the last year in particular, there's been this kind of explosion in AI. And that, that's a, that really is a paradigm shift for a lot of people um, because it's like, historically, when you think about, okay, how do you solve this problem? Well, the go-to for a lot of companies is like, well, we need to hire more people, you know, or or it could be, you know, it could be, well, let's look at like process improvements, but eventually there's only so much process improvement you could do. And the labor shortages, I mean, there's not enough counselors to treat all of the mental health and behavioral health issues that exist in this country, you know? And so working with incredibly scarce resources, we have to look at technology to solve some of these problems. And so AI, has been a big thing, you know, digital therapeutics. It's interesting because we saw digital therapeutics, like take off over the, over the years and tons of like venture capital funding went into developing new digital therapeutics because everybody knows like, Hey, we have, there's a problem here that we have to solve. There's a, there's not enough people to treat all the issues that we have. Technology's got to play a role. We don't know what role technology is going to play or the best use cases to apply that technology but it's got to be something. So we got to try lots of different things. So tons of investment has gone into things like digital therapy. We we worked with a company and White labeled an, an app that was like specific for our needs and our company. And and we're right now rolling it out across the company. We're really, really excited about this app. We've piloted every app out there and decided just kind of to, to build our own in conjunction with, with this other company. And so things like that will be a game changer. And I said, you know, we we saw the rise and fall of digital therapeutics. We saw tons of money get poured into it. We saw bundled payers come up with, you know, bundled rates around digital therapeutics and stuff. And, and then we saw the kind of fall where people started saying, but we're not, this sounds great. The sound, this looks cool. This app looks great and looks cool, but we're not actually seeing the outcomes we should be seeing. So it's not actually adding value. It just looks cool. It looks like it's adding value, but it's not. And so we saw that kind of rise and fall of digital therapeutics, and, and there's got to be some digital therapeutic solutions that come up in the future. There's no way to, I don't think there's any way to solve some of the issues that we're dealing with without a lot of innovation. And most of that's going to come in the form of some new technology. Should I keep going?
0: No. Well, uh, my next question was just going to be kind of, where do you see the industry going in the next five years or so? What kind of things do you see happening, especially with COVID still Technically, around is telehealth gonna you know stick around that kind of stuff? Oh yeah, tele telehealth has to stick around because it's the uh, telehealth
1: improves economies of scale because like you know especially if you see you know n- national providers, multi state providers. Um, a lot of times, like when we go into some rural town, there might not be any doctors available that you know that treat addiction or that want to treat addiction, and so the only way to get care there is via telehealth. So. Telehealth. I mean, you could look at you could look at the rest of healthcare and say where is behavioral health heading in the future, and where's the rest of healthcare heading? Well, whole person, you know, integrated care, for instance, where you're providing where you're treating more than just the physical health aspects, but it's kind of like that biopsychosocial model where you're treating the whole person. Like that's the way healthcare is going, right? Healthcare is moving towards pay for outcomes in the form of value based. Purchasing arrangements. The rest of healthcare is moving more towards. Tel- I've been doing telehealth for a very long time. You see healthcare moving towards more like concierge services, you know, where it's more convenient access for people. You see healthcare doing a lot of stuff with like AI and blockchain and and different things like that. And so that's where I see. I mean, behavioral health has just kind of always been a little bit behind. And so I think it's it's pretty easy to see. Where behavioral health is going in the future by looking at where the rest of healthcare has gone, and so you know it's exciting times. But even in healthcare in general, there's still a lack of there. You know, there's I don't know. I would say a lack, but there's still always a lot of room for improvement via innovation, and so that could be exciting. I, I think it will be exciting. It should keep us up at night. The amount of work that we have to do to to make even more of an impact on our society, and so.
0: This podcast is for people at all levels. So I kind of always ask your advice for people who might want to get into the industry or might want to be more involved with it. So what kind of things would you, if you were to talk to yourself when you first started out, what are some of the things you would tell yourself is to keep an eye out for?
1: Well, for people who want to be in the industry or for people who don't know they want to be in the industry. For people who, who are in the industry and want to like, maybe get more information. Well, I kind of believe that you kind of have to feel called to work in this space because it's not always the easiest space. I mean, you're dealing with, I mean, there's so much stigma in our society against you, not just patients, but treatment providers themselves, right? There's stigma against the treatment providers. There's, you know, we're dealing with a population that they're a lot of times like when you're treating people with substance use disorders. You know, you're you're dealing with people who who might have been relying on a a, co- a coping mechanism in the form of a substance for the last you know 20 years of their life, and they're having to give that up when they come into treatment. So they're you're dealing with an incredibly like vulnerable population that has a lot of like pretty acute needs when they're entering treatment. And it's encouraging that we get to see the impact we're making on patients' lives, but it's also I'm sure a lot of people get frustrated a lot of clinicians get frustrated when they're not seeing consistent impacts you know it might take somebody 2 years to stabilize in treatment and it might take another person 2 weeks you know and so it takes that kind of patience and and compassion and caring but all of that can lead to could we say compassion fatigue i think empathy fatigue might be a better term we struggle with things like empathy fatigue and so I say to people all the time, like, and I say to all of our employees, like as part of the NEO, like if you're just looking for like a nine to five job paycheck, like this probably isn't the right place for you because it takes really feeling that you're you're called to be here to make an impact. And that takes a, a passionate type of person. Now, I will say there's a lot of people who don't, I was one of them, who have no interest in working in addiction treatment. And then once you once you dip your toe in the water and you and you see the impact that we're making, it's very, very easy to get passionate about it, right? I think a lot of people, I mean, I say this to, I think more doctors should be treating, way more doctors should be coming out of medical school with a passion towards treating addiction. Because a lot of times that's not maybe the sexy, you know, feel to go into, or it's not something they've had much exposure to or something. But once people do have exposure to it, like it's very, very easy to get passionate about it. So I'd say like, make sure you have the passion, you have the calling to to be in this field, and then I'd say, you know, find a company that that really aligns with your values. I mean, that's really important because I think just like people get empathy fatigue, I think companies get empathy fatigue as well. Where it's kind of like companies get in, they get they lose their focus, and I think this goes for all types of businesses, all throughout all industries, whatever makes you special. When you're small and growing, sometimes you lose sight of that. You lose sight of your mission, vision, and values as you grow, if, especially if you're doing a good job, because if you're doing a good job providing good product or service, then it actually attracts more customers, and then you end up growing in response to that, and then it becomes a cycle of you grow, provide good service or product, attract more customers, then grow for more, to, to cater to more customers, and then attract more customers. It becomes a cycle. It's very easy for that cycle to unravel. If you're not staying focused on something like, you know, to us, it's mission, vision, and values. Like, there's got to be something grounding you. It's like our country, you know, goes back to the Constitution all the time. Like, we have this kind of these central tenets and Bill of Rights that we can turn to at all times when we lose our way. And I think companies need to think that way as well. You know, we have to pay attention to things like mission, vision, values, cultural norms, and stuff like that. Let that guide every decision you make. And so, For people coming into the industry, I'd say it is very important that you work for an agency that really has that passion and aligns with your values because it makes it a lot more enjoyable to come to work every day when you're surrounded by like-minded people who are just, just oozing with passion for what we do.
0: Well, speaking of that, how do you kind of keep that yourself? How do you keep that passion going? How do you stop from yourself having fatigue or burnout? I mean, I, I
1: go to therapy myself. I've gone to therapy since I was probably 18. I think everybody should be in therapy for the rest of their lives. And, and I have a, you know, I do, I do mindfulness therapy for instance. And, and my therapist, you know, when I'm having a rough day and and I do, sometimes I'm like, man, why am I doing this? I could be like running dental practices or something. I don't know, something a lot less stressful. And my therapist will have me sit there and meditate on the impact we're making. Like think about the lives, the amount of lives you're impacting and the amount of lives your your company is impacting, and dwell on that. Like just, you know, be be cognizant of it. Remind yourself. That's one way I do it personally. But I also think that, you know, we there's ways you could operationalize that as well. So we, for instance, as a company, we have a town hall every Friday, every week, been doing this for six or seven years, whole company every Friday usually about 20 to 30% of the company's on it because it's during work hours and and it's recorded so people could listen. But we start every single town hall with a patient telling their story to the company. And that wasn't actually our intent. Our intent was when we started the town hall, it was like we'd have a counselor talking about a success story, a patient success story, right? And they'd be like, yeah, I had this great patient success story I want to share with everybody. It would take about five minutes. Patients started hearing about this and wanting to tell their story. So now every week we have a patient who comes on and says, I'd like to tell my history with addiction and the impact you all have made in my recovery. And it's usually about 20 minutes of them talking and, and just sharing the impact that we're making. And, you know, we do that every single week because that is the time we remind ourselves. And I say this to the patient when they're talking and I say this to our entire staff because we have a lot of staff that might work in a corporate function and HR or IT or something that don't get experienced this on a daily basis. And it's like, and I say to the company, this is a reminder of this one story right here. We're treating 20,000 patients right now, but this one story is why we come to work every day. You know, seeing one person turn their lives around. And our patients are some of the most noble members in our society. I mean, to see people who are in recovery, what they've had to overcome Throughout their lives, to to get just to get into treatment, and then to make the decision to get into treatment, to stabilize in treatment, and not and, and a lot of them I say in recovery. I mean that can mean a lot of different things to a lot of different people. You know, we have a lot of patients who are still maybe struggling with the with their relationship with a substance, but you know they've they've gotten their jobs back if that's what they wanted, or they or they've been they've been housed if they if they wanted to be housed, or got reunited with their families. All these things they're dealing with, they're learning coping skills, you know, they're in therapy and they're, they're oftentimes tied into other modalities of treatment on the behavioral health, physical health, mental health side. So us as a company sitting there every week together, listening to a story like that. I mean, there's actually research that talks about when you hear a story like that as a group, your brains start kind of synchronizing a little bit. You know, your brainwave activity and stuff as a group actually starts synchronizing by just by listening to stories like that. And so it's very powerful. And so we, we spend a lot of time celebrating successes on that town hall. I also go through, um, I always go through about five shout outs, people, any employee could give a shout out to another employee. We go through shout outs. We have an open forum where anybody could ask any question they want. On any topic, like is there something we could improve on as a company, and then we'll open it up to discussion. So it's really powerful. I mean, that's one example. I personally do a mission, vision, and values presentation as part of our NEO live to 100 of employees that start with our company. We have about a thousand employees now, so that turns into maybe 40 40 employees every two weeks, or and I go through like our mission, vision, and values and talk about how important it is that we hold ourselves. Accountable to each other. I need to be held accountable too, um, because sometimes I'll get hyper focused on something. And there's um, activities like that that you could put in place to reinforce, you know, why we do what we do every day. And I really think that's what helps stave off the empathy fatigue. And by the way, I call it empathy fatigue. I read this in a book, and I really I just latched onto it because we use the term compassion fatigue a lot. But I actually think that being compassionate towards other people. Actually builds up our soul. You know, it's like being practicing compassion actually edifies us. Practicing empathy without compassion is what drains. Like just constantly empathizing. My wife's an empath. You know, she's very empathetic. She empathizes with everybody all the time, and that's draining. But if you could then take that empathy and add compassion, then it actually. I think that edifies you. So finding that right balance. So I'm not sure if people get compassion fatigue as much as they do empathy fatigue. And so I think the more we could actually practice compassion as people and as a company, like the more it's actually going to build our own selves up and our own psychology up and, and build up other people around us.
0: Now, before we move on to how people can get a hold of you, was there something that you wanted to talk about that we haven't or that something that you thought I was going to ask, but we didn't? No, I like the question about where do you think the industry is going? Because that's where, uh,
1: you know, I spend a lot of my time thinking about that too. And it's a good question. You know, I, I guess the only other thing is like, because the current environment that we're in, there's been a lot of disruptions. I don't know if that's the right word, but there's been a lot of kind of disruptions over the years, which has really been a stress test for the industry. And I think. I mean, look, a lot, of, a lot of providers went out of business, you know, over the last couple of years. And I think that's the kind of natural evolution of things is that like the stress test causes the good providers to get better and more disciplined and, um, you know, causes and then the bad providers either adapt or fall by the wayside. And, you know, you've seen it with things like medication assisted treatment. I mean, there's still a lot of programs out there who don't use it and don't utilize and don't accept it. In my opinion, those providers should should be going out of business. I mean, that's the. Can you imagine if industries, if tech companies, let's say, you know, Netflix was focused on, um, you know, shipping out DVDs when they first started? Well, can you imagine if if Netflix, I use this example all the time, stayed focused on just that aspect of their business and didn't change, they'd be out of business. And that's what happened to Blockbuster, for instance. You know, there's a lot of companies who don't change with the times, and when new evidence comes out, and new data comes out, and new technologies come out and they don't get adopted, then bad providers shouldn't be forced to adopt them. They should, it should be natural selection. And good providers should excel. And I'm not going to sit here and say like we're one of the good providers, but I think we're trying to be. And so this new environment, which is a lot more disciplined and focused and it's caused us to have to do a better job prioritizing, do a better job of, you know, running efficient operations, doing a better job of taking care of our employees. All those things like these stress tests really do lead to kind of this. I mean, that's that's how you know iron sharpens iron. It's it's how human beings develop through through struggles and and by overcoming obstacles. And and I think that the current like just economic environment in general is causing a lot of companies to grow, which is an awesome thing. It's also causing a lot of companies to close. And so I, I gotta imagine that the industry will be better off because of it all in the next couple of years.
0: Great. Now, if someone wants to learn more about you or get in touch with you, how would you recommend them do that? Probably, you know, you can look
1: me up on LinkedIn. You could email me. My email address is nick.stavros at cmsgibshope.com. You could also add me on LinkedIn, message me. And yeah, I always love helping out other providers that are, um, you know, maybe dealing with something that I've dealt with in the past. And I'm always reaching out to other people for help as well. Awesome. No, thanks for
0: having me. You've been listening to Destination Change. Our guest today was Nick Stavros. Thank you for being here. Our theme song was Sun Nation by Kitsa and used via Creative Commons License by the Free Music Archive. Please consider rating and reviewing the podcast on Apple Podcasts so we can get more listeners. In the meantime, you can always see more about the podcast, including show notes and where else to listen, on our website, www.nbhap.org. If you have questions for the podcast, please email us at info at Thanks to you for listening.